This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the lounge. It's been a while since I've seen you. been a while since I've recorded anything in the lounge. Uh, very special episode today. Bit of a round table between myself, uh, esteemed beloved practitioner, litigator, criminal defense lawyer, uh, Aaron Dan, who you um, sure know, uh, and new kid on the block, Maya Kutub, who practices at uh, Anita Zagetti's shop, uh, Anita Storied wonderful Anita Zagetti. And we're talking about practicing at the intersection of criminal law and mental health disability disorder. And uh, many of you have written to me about this practice area. You're in law school, you're trying to figure things out. What do you want to do? Um, and it is a fascinating area. It's a challenging area. And we thought we'd, we'd bring together um, this little group for free flowing discussion on the topics related to this area of practice um, and, and see what you think. Um, let me know what you think of this episode. And um, we're always grateful for feedback. Uh, and I can't wait to see you next time in the lounge. I am so happy that uh, two of my friends have accepted invitations into the lounge today. We have Aaron Dan and Maya Kutub, who are here with me in the lounge to talk about their practices. Uh, and their practices are, I know, will be of great interest to our listeners who um, email me all the time and call me all, all the time asking how to get into this area of the law um, and how to do it well. Uh, and what we're talking about today is, is mental health, mental uh, disability, and the law, um, the civil system and the criminal system. And why don't we start actually, Erin, by uh, talking about your practice um, and, and, and how it relates to mental health. Sure. Uh, thanks, Danielle, for having me. Um, I'm really happy to be here with you and with Maya in the lounge. Uh, my the the part of my practice that intersects with mental disorder um, is uh, my representation my representation of clients who are either charged with a criminal offense or who have been found guilty of a criminal offense who have significant mental health um, issues. And the biggest sort of part of my practice that involves working with clients with mental health issues are people who have been found not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder, uh, often in relation to relatively minor offenses uh, and who have been under the jurisdiction of the review board for many, many years. And I am often helping them appeal the NCR verdict. Um, trying to get them essentially convicted of the offense. So it's a bit of a niche practice for a defense lawyer. I win when my appellants um, get convicted, which is kind of unusual. Uh, but often these are folks who have been detained in forensic hospitals for many, many years. 
um, under the jurisdiction of the review board and, and ultimately their way out of that is uh, overturning the original NCR verdict. So that's a big, big part of my practice. And then I also assist clients who are charged with criminal offenses, um, uh, helping them get mental health diversion, uh, assisting them with other defenses, not mental health related uh, with, their, with their criminal charges. Um, advancing NCR defenses in some cases. And I also do a little bit of review board uh, work in terms of hearings uh, and also uh, represent people at ORB appeals to the Court of Appeal. Yeah, Erin, I think you and I met in an airport. Uh, we met up in an airport in some northern town a couple of years ago. And it occurred to me that you were just like roving the province on undoing NCR verdicts. <laughs> Yes, I have. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure unpopular in many summary conviction appeal courts, but I have done uh, NCR appeals uh, and they're often, as I say, minor offenses. So they're preceded summarily and the appeals are at superior courts. Um, and I've done those appeals uh, from, you know, Southern Ontario in Sarnia to Kenora, Sault Ste. Marie, Thunder Bay, North Bay, um, across the province, um, sort of going in sometimes years, uh, sometimes months, but sometimes years after somebody has been found NCR. Wow. And, and Maya, I understand that your practice is um, based in the G- GTA, uh, but why don't, why don't you tell our listeners about your practice? Yeah, so um, first of all, yeah, thank you so much, Danielle, for having us. I'm very happy to be in the lounge. And um, yes, our practice is based in the GTA. I work at Anita Segeti Advocates. So in terms of the part of our practice that intersects with mental health and disability, it's all of it. So we represent individuals before the Consent and Capacity Board and the Ontario Review Board and then appeals from those decisions. So by definition, all of our clients have at least received a diagnosis of a mental health issue. And we represent them either in the civil system, so challenging an involuntary uh, status or challenging an incapacity finding with respect to treatment or finances. And then we also represent them in the criminal stream. So the Ontario Review Board stream when they've been found not criminally responsible and in their annual hearings or restriction of liberty hearings. And Maya, maybe you can can help me out. Uh, I know that you're a fairly recent call um, and, uh, and I'm very curious to hear how you were drawn to this area of the law. I did my master's in healthcare law and ethics in the University of Manchester. And one of the courses that I took there was mental health law. And for some reason uh, that I really can't put my hand on, it really called to me and I found it very interesting. And I think it's probably because the decisions that are made in the realm of mental health law and the policies and just the laws in this area have such a huge impact on the daily lives of individuals with mental health issues. And it was really bizarre honestly for me to hear that individuals could be detained in a psychiatric hospital potentially for indefinite periods of time having not committed a crime having not actually harmed anyone else but essentially more of a preventative measure and I was really interested to learn more about that so when I moved to Toronto after that I 
was looking for lawyers that were working in the mental health law area and found myself working here. That's really interesting. And, and I think like, Aaron, I, I want to know your, your story. I don't think we've ever talked about it. We've known each other a long time. Um, but it occurs to me like there's, there, it's not just about helping um, in a, in a kind of a, uh, therapeutic sense, because we could have taken, you know, psychiatry, we've could have, could have gone into social work, but something drew you to this area of legal work. Um, yeah. 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 I think it's actually really important for me to differentiate that, that I don't help my clients, even those who recognize and accept they have a mental health diagnosis. I don't help them therapeutically. That's not my role. And, um, part of what drew me to this, or it really has, has kept me interested in this area of law is assisting people in advancing their legal interests and setting aside their therapeutic interests and recognizing that this person has agency and is giving me instructions and has goals and self uh, autonomy and, I am assisting them in advancing their legal interests um, in a way that oftentimes uh, the client hasn't had a representative, hasn't had someone speaking on their behalf and advancing their interests, their goals um, in the way that that I do as counsel. Um, And that can be, that's also, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, that's one of the hardest parts of the jobs is is sometimes I will be taking positions that far from advancing my client's sort of therapeutic interests, they may well be um, doing the opposite. Uh, But if my client is saying, this is what I want, I've got, you know, the client is fit, they're giving me these instructions, um, I'm, I, think I'm really contributing something when I am advancing that position and enabling them to be, have full access to whether it's the criminal justice system or a a civil process um, and ensuring that they are recognized for the sort of full as, as full members of society entitled to the same inherent dignity uh, that we all enjoy. But um, But I think what really drew me initially to the field was, you know, the money, the prestige. (laughs) (laughs) It goes with this area, you know, hard to to resist. Um, No, I, I, I'm, I'm teasing. I think it's, uh, it is not either well respected nor remunerated, but uh, I think it's, it's a, a really interesting area. I sort of fell into to doing um, uh, work with uh, clients with mental health issues. I uh, didn't sort of leave law school with that particular focus in mind. And I was referred a case when I was quite junior as a defense lawyer by Bob Richardson, a great, great lawyer. And he referred me one of my first own summary conviction appeals. You know, I was working for senior lawyers, but he referred the case to me. And it was a fellow who had been under the jurisdiction of the review board for about seven years, having been found NCR of a really minor assault and an uttering threat uh, charge. And I got an extension of time, even though it was seven years old. And we, I lost at the summary conviction appeal. We had to bring it to the court of appeal, but ultimately won. And he walked out 
of court, he, you know, front, the court of appeal allowed his appeal from the bench and he walked out of Ontario shores after seven years of wow. detention. And, uh, it, um, he was so grateful and he was, um, even when we had lost initially the summary conviction appeal at first instance, he was so happy to have had someone go into court and say his position and have um, an opportunity to hear a court engage with his argument, what he viewed as being legally correct and have someone advance and advocate on his behalf. And uh, it was that really sort of set me on that, that road. I think there are so many issues like Maya was saying, it's, it's a really interesting area of law. And often, um, I think some of like the interesting as a law geek, some of the interesting legal issues are not well explored that we were like, Oh, this person's mentally ill. Let's just get them in through diversion. Let's not worry about sort of the nitty gritty legal parts. There's actually a lot of really good legal interest, interesting legal work to be done uh, that I like doing. And then also it's an incredibly human uh, experience and you have uh, very grateful uh, clients Sometimes they don't express that in, <laughs> in easy ways, uh, but uh, it's wonderful. And, and I have to say, when, I, when that fellow walked after seven years, that uh, he told everyone he knew. And so I started getting a lot of calls from other <laughs> clients who had been wow. uh, detained for a long time. And, and that sort of started me on, on, uh, on this focus area in my practice. That's such an amazing story. And I think like a lesson for some of our younger listeners to, to, when you go into practice, to keep an open mind and, and see walk, what walks through the door and be open to those experiences and alive to your reaction, you know, and, and develop your practice area as, as it comes through the door, I think is just really a great lesson. I think the other thing that I reflect on as you're talking, Erin, is, you know, I think that so many ethical pitfalls in the practice of law have to do with strain from your lane, you know, not minding the boundaries of your role. And you see that prosecutors um, will fall uh, into traps when they uh, stray from their lane, defense counsel and, and judges, right? We see that, that the expression that I always love is when the judge, the trial judge enters the fray, you know, and, and we all do so much better when we, we are mindful of our, our boundaries, but in your practice area, and I do, I do a little, you know, I dabble and maybe that's not uh, advisable, but <laughs> I do find it challenging. Um, and I don't know if it's my maternal instinct that I veer into a paternal mode that I have to constantly um, counsel myself away from, because I, I do want to kind of take over and fix it. You know, I want to, I want to fix my client's life and, and get them back on their meds and send them to rehab and, and really kind of fix their life from this kind of holistic perspective that I have no business uh, being involved in. I don't know, Maya, if you found that that's been an ethical challenge for you or if you, or, or if there've been other challenges. I, I definitely agree that it's a big challenge. This, that, exactly what you said is, is a really big challenge in this area. But, you know, the whole system, um, the legal system, 
uh, in terms of mental health law is really built on a lot of paternalism to start with. And almost every other participant is actually trying to decide on behalf of the client what their best interests are, whether it's the doctor, whether it's the board a lot of the times, whether it's the family members, they all want to decide what is best for that person and what the person should do and how their life uh, would be better if they just took their meds and if they just stayed in hospital or did X, Y, and Z. And as a lawyer, you're often the only person that's actually advocating for what the client wants rather than what the client quote unquote needs. So I think as soon as the lawyer blurs that line and if the lawyer is also advocating for what the client supposedly needs, then there's really no one there to actually speak for the client and give voice for give voice to what it is that they want and their own wishes, which they're entitled to. So there's there's always also a lot more than meets the eye. So it's it's sometimes easy to look at a case and go like, oh, obviously this person would be better off like with meds. Why isn't he just taking his meds? But then you 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 know you read more, you realize the nothing is black and white, basically. It's not as simple as it's sometimes made out to be, which is, you know, uh, which is a lot yeah it's not it's never as simple essentially as it's made out to be often by doctors or by family members that that that's really interesting and i i think um it just it strikes me as such a, a rewarding um area of practice and um and you're right Aaron. i don't it it doesn't pay very well um but you know, I, I've seen you around the, the cells at Old City Hall and it sure is glamorous. <laughs> it sure is. What it, yes. What, what it lacks in, uh, <laughs> in pay, it makes up in glamour. And I think <laughs> I, I've told Danielle this story before and I know she'll, you probably, she probably remembers it. You probably remember it, Danielle, better than I do. I've blocked it, um, uh, it out a little bit, but, uh, uh, in one of my earlier days of practice, I was meeting a client who was very, very unwell. And he was supposed to be up in um, 102 court, which is the mental health court at Old City Hall. And uh, he was refusing to leave uh, the cells to come into court. And eventually we decided it might be easier for us to actually go to him in the cells. Um and uh, so I, down I went into the cells, which is not terribly uncommon. What was uncommon in this case is that he was so upset. And this was a, a fellow who expressed his upset um, by, on this instance, throwing some of his own feces at me in the cells of the, uh, of the courthouse, um, which upside... I had been having a hard time uh, convincing the court and crown that there were fitness issues at play. But once the old, once the, 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 the shit actually hit me, um, <laughs> not just the fan, but yeah. actually the counsel, I was able to, uh, to pretty quickly convince the trial judge that there, there might be some fitness concerns that had to be addressed, but uh, it is, it's definitely not, uh, always glamorous work. Uh, some of the clients present, you know, real challenges, but I also say like they're, they're both the most challenging and the most rewarding 
yeah. part of this type of practice uh, because that fellow, you know, we were able, he, he was subject to a treatment order. He was eventually made fit and his charges were eventually stayed um, yeah. for a number of different reasons. And, and uh, he was uh, got out of the system and, you know, um, has, has been fairly uh, successful and it's wonderful to be able to assist people at really what can be some of like the, the super um, lowest moments of their lives. But I would just echo, I think Maya put it really, really well that when we, when we stray from our lanes, um, in your language, Danielle, we leave, we can leave the person defenseless. Yeah. Generally speaking, these folks have doctors and they've got parents and they've got social workers. And that's not my job. My job is to be their defense lawyer. Um, and I will often tell a client because some of my clients also don't recognize the mental health diagnosis. And it's nice for them to have one person in their life who's not telling them that they're wrong about that or that this is what they have to do. And I tell them, look, like, I'm not your doctor. I don't know whether you're, you've got this diagnosis is right or wrong. What I can do is give you some legal advice. And that doesn't mean that like I ignore the, the mental health situation. And if I think, um, gosh, meds might really be helpful here. Mm-hmm. And I think I have a basis to say that I can say, look, I don't know whether this diagnosis is right or not. What I can tell you is if you agree to take the medication, if the medication makes you feel better, and if you're consistently on it, you might get a better result legally here. And so I, I give my clients legal advice and yeah. I leave the medical advice to other people. Um, and, and I think that also helps, you know, build relationships with people who often have a, a, a real distrust of, of, uh, people in positions of authority telling them how they should act and what they should do. And, and I think that the other reason to try and avoid as hard as it is to avoid that paternalism is it's really hard to know what's in someone's best interest. Mm. Uh, and what we may all think right now is in everyone's best interest, um, may, we might be wrong. So, you know, I, I, I sort of try and leave that for, for other folks and do my best to say, like, what, what can I do to best advance your, how can I best represent you legally? That's my bet. And that's what I can do. I mean, I think, I think that, um, you know, this, this story, uh, from the cells of old city hall, (laughs) like I, I, it just tells me so much about you as an advocate, Aaron, that it, that happens. And the, your first thought is, well, this is going to assist me in making the case, um, in, in bail court, that there is indeed a fitness issue that you look at it from an evidentiary perspective, (laughs) Um, before you think of your own self-interest, I think, I think that says a a ton about you and that you also have difficulty remembering the details, but can remember the outcome in terms of, um, uh, uh, the charges being stayed for that client. So I think, I think it's all a very good sign. And, and we are approaching, um, Aaron and I were called in the same year. Uh, I think, uh, we're, we're close to 15 years out now, right, Aaron? We're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned Bob Richardson and, um, and, and I know some of your, your other mentors, um, and it strikes me that this is an area of the law where um, mentorship isn't important, uh, is important. Um, I don't know if that resonates with you, Maya. Um, I know that you're working with, with Anita. Um, 
it, it seems to me like you need a bud to talk to um, for this area of the law. Yeah, um, de- definitely. So I, as soon as I became a, a lawyer, I was pretty much thrown into the deep from day one. So I actually appeared on appeal before the Superior Court of Justice on day 20 of being a lawyer. So, and it's been the same ever since. It's just been being thrown in the deep. But the only reason that that dynamic would work and it does work is because I have the benefit of really robust um, mentoring and a robust safety net, essentially. So, um, There, essentially, there's like two main ways that I think that I've been assisted and mentored and guided through the bumps and hurdles along the way. Because the one thing that I've come to realize essentially as a junior lawyer is that you really don't know what you don't know. And you're gonna run into all sorts of issues that you won't foresee and that, that you won't be able to even foresee. So the, the two ways that I've been assisted with that is like, firstly, is by observing um, other lawyers work. Mm-hmm. So since I was an Arctic thing student, I um, try to attend as many hearings as I can. And I still do that. I, I, I like to get every opportunity that I can get to watch other lawyers advocate. And what really, and that's not only to learn advocacy skills but also to learn what to do when things go wrong and you know what to do when you're in a tricky ethical situation and how to be a fair candid officer of the court but at the same time be a zealous advocate for your client and and these things are so hard to learn on paper and it's impossible really to learn them on paper so mentorship has played a crucial role in just watching other lawyers and anita do their job and do their work and how they go about um, tricky situations. And the other thing that I found to be very helpful was to, you know, have a support network, if you can, of lawyers that you trust that you can go to when things go wrong and when things take a turn or, you know, an issue blows up in your face. So I've, I've had the benefit of, you know, always having a direct line to Anita. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've asked for a break and I've called her on the side and, you know, kind of ranted saying this, this has happened. What do I do now? And that is just honestly crucial because otherwise I don't know how I would not, how I would have navigated the issues that sometimes come up. And it's not necessarily through one lawyer only or an individual lawyer, you know, you can have access to it. It's also more beneficial to have access to a number of lawyers because you get the benefit of different perspectives and how different people may address the same exact issue. So listservs in that sense have been also of crucial importance to me. So I would just, you know, email out uh, to the listservs telling them about a situation that I'm facing. And the great thing, honestly, about our bar is that so many people are willing to help. So I've never had an issue where no one has stepped up. So many people have been able to you know, call me, tell me what to do, send me cases, tell me how to navigate a situation where I otherwise wouldn't have had a clue. So honestly, mentorship, I think in this area and probably in every area is extremely crucial. Yeah. I mean, Erin, it's just, it's not the type of area of law where 
you don't, you, you can kind of survive without that network. Right. I agree. I, I don't know that I can add much more to what Maya said. I think she's, she's hit the points and I think you do need like, you need multiple folks that you can rely on. Cause you also don't want to burn out your, like a single mentor, sure. right. There's, there's a lot, um, here and, uh, it's important to have the mentorship both for the the technical legal points and that those panicked phone calls of what do I do, um, but also for the like human emotional side, this area of practice takes a toll, at least it has for me. And having people that you can, you know, at the end of a difficult day, laugh with and joke with and um, debrief with, are, that's critical. And I, I feel uh, for, especially for more junior counsel who maybe haven't established those relationships uh, and now during the pandemic, when you, you can't go into the lawyer's lounge at lunch and just sort of say, oh my gosh, this just happened <laughs> uh, and get some insights from more experienced people. I, I really miss that. So I love the virtual lounge, which is wonderful. And I, I'm looking forward to uh I'm looking forward, though, to, to returning um, uh, to a time, I hope, when we can have those face-to-face interactions again, because I think they're, they're really critical. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, and I think one thing that I've been reflecting on as we approach um, this kind of milestone um, in terms of our years uh, at the bar is the concept of longevity. You know, I just, uh, I... I think the three of us are in the same boat that we've kind of hit the jackpot. We've found the thing, you know, the, the thing we were um, meant to do. And it's so rewarding. It's so challenging. Um, and I want to be able to do it for another 20, 30 years, you know, uh, um, but I do see the, the, the danger of burnout and, um, and fatigue and uh, cynicism creeping in um, from kind of year over year of, of, of this sort of practice area. And I, I, I wondered if um, both of you have any um, insight on, on how to kind of maintain your own sense of balance and health while doing this extremely challenging work. Maya, you, you were probably just too busy and run off your feet to to think about your own health. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's honestly a tough question because I don't think there's just a, like a, one answer to it. And I don't think there is a single model of the quote unquote balance that everyone should achieve. I think everyone's balance is going to look a bit different and it's also going to depend on that person's other Um, demands in their life and their other priorities so someone that might be you know early in their life you know without any children or without any family obligations might have different priorities to someone that you know may have a lot of other obligations beside their work so you know I'm I'm wary around that conversation because I, I sometimes 
you know, how it's put out, it, it, the, the work-life balance is put out as something that you must achieve. And if you don't achieve it, you're falling short. <laughs> and that is an additional burden yeah. that is imposed on young lawyers. Like, are you taking care of your health? Are you, you know, t- t- walking every single day? Are you exercising? And, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I don't have time. <laughs> and I don't know when I do that. And I have no motivation. So it's, it's, it's hard you know so sometimes work-life balance is honestly just an additional burden that's put on the younger lawyers that are struggling to you know keep afloat with their work and you know their the the whole new uh you know legal uh obligations that are in front of them so it's really different i think everyone just needs to uh, at least remember to at least remember to take a look at what they might need at a certain point in time and hopefully have the supports around them to respect those needs. So, you know, sometimes I really don't mind working, you know, long hours every single day for a full week, but sometimes just a single day may burn me out because it was a really tough case or it was just, you know, really draining. And I think if you have um, the supports or, you know, you're able to speak out when you need the supports, I think that's what's the most important. Just to take a step back and say, you know what, today I need, you know, some time for myself. Today I need to just, you know, stop working early. And then, you know, another day you might be fine with not doing that and you might be fine with working through the night. So that, that I think is the balance, really just knowing when to stop and knowing when you're when you want to continue and when you want to work hard because that there's nothing wrong with that either but it's just you know respecting your own needs and uh, honestly I want to echo what Aaron said about humor and you know having people to laugh with yeah and I think that is also crucial even with your like the regular day-to-day like balance because the work that we do can be so draining and can be so heavy it's, it's not, you know, it's not easy topics that we come across every single day. So, you know, being able to laugh is a relief that I think we all need in this yeah. area. Oh my God, Maya, I'm just so happy you voiced that perspective. I've been a bit nervous to express it myself, but I, you know, I think um, in my earlier years at the bar, I was not thinking about balance or paying attention to um, uh, those sorts of lifestyle goals. And I really went flat out. Um, And it it was really driven by um, pure passion. I didn't want to do anything else. You know, I really didn't want to do anything else, but read the law, work the law and sleep, Um, you know, which it was challenging, of course, because I had uh, twins, <laughs> so I had, had to fit them in. But um, it, you know, and I and I did see um, this movement um, geared especially towards female counsel um, at fine, you know, t- telling lawyers that they should consider part time or or alternative careers, or you know, um, as an additional stress and and pressure. Um, so I, I think I think. I think that's right. I think that's dead on. But I, I should say that as uh, I've become more senior, I've found more time and space to get back to the things that I used to do, you know, kind of movement medicine. You know, I was a dancer in high school. I'm, I'm back into yoga. Um, I'm, I can read fiction now. I think, 
I didn't read for the first 12 years of my practice, but I'm back to reading books, real books. Um, and so I don't know if that's kind of the usual life cycle. Does that ring true to you, Erin? Yeah, I think it's certainly easier now to achieve some measure of work-life balance than it was in my first five or even 10 years of practice. So I think that's a really helpful thing to keep in mind that like it's hard to achieve work-life balance and it's also hard to be um, really, really driven uh, in terms of your work career while people are telling you like, are you also exercising five times a week? And are you also, um, you know, making, are you doing mindfulness meditation several times a week? And like, it's all wonderful. I know the self-care it's not like a lack of knowledge is what's keeping me from that. So I think Maya, that, that perspective is so useful. This shouldn't be self-care should not be another thing we feel guilty about. I, I, I don't know about you two, but I'm good at feeling guilty about a lot of things. I don't need to add on like another, another thing I'm failing at. Yeah. Um, I, I think it has gotten easier. I mean, as I've gotten more senior and now I have, you know, I started as an associate for Joe DeLuca and, and Brees, uh, uh Davis, now both judges and Peter Copeland. And, and I was the one, you know, they had worked hard and they generally didn't get up on Saturday morning to go to wash court, right? And, and that was the job of the associate. And I think as I've moved sort of through my career and now I have my own associates, um, I have a bit more control over my time and that helps with the work-life balance for sure. Um, I often have this expression, you know, it'll all get done and it does always get done, but it's often a great personal cost, I think, to our mental and emotional uh, health and well-being. Um, I think one thing that the pandemic helped me to see a little bit was it's okay if things don't get done. Like the world doesn't stop spinning. And I think increasingly our legal practice um, and, and the sort of criminal justice system in general needs to recognize that if we if work-life balance is important and if defense counsel uh, need to have some time for their for themselves, we have to build that into the structure of, of practice, which means like sometimes things are going to have to get adjourned. Sometimes we are not going to be able to file X brief. Um, you know, if we're in the midst of a, a three-month murder trial, we can't get those written submissions in by the end of the week. We're going, it's going to have to yeah. happen the next week. There, there needs to be some recognition that people can't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I think that's outside of the, the power. I think some of the things that need to happen to allow people to have work-life balance, um, are outside the, the power of individual lawyers. And so yeah. sort of beating ourselves up for not having that work-life balance when, when structurally it's, it's not always e easy to achieve. Um, that's something we've got to, we've got to watch out for. And um, I don't know, I think for myself, one of the things that helped me as I, I do a lot of appellate work, which means I lose like all the time. And one thing that, uh, <laughs> one thing that made me sort of happier in my, um, in my practice is remembering or coming to the realization that my value as an advocate 
is not directly tied to my win-loss record. Mm -hmm. I can do a really, really good job for a client, the best job that anyone could, could do. And that, and we might still lose. And, um, and then separate. And then one step further from that is that my value as a person isn't dependent just on my, um, my role as a criminal defense lawyer. And so that I think making sure you keep some perspective about, you know, we do an important job and it's, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Um, but we are also more than the job that we do. Uh, we're more than just this profession and our value comes from not just what happens inside a courtroom or a tribunal hearing. Well, shit, Aaron, I didn't think you were going to get deep. Sorry. <laughs> happens Once, once every 15 years. Danielle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I think so many of us struggle with that boundary, right? I think so many of us really have our identity wrapped in up with the job and it's really hard to figure out where um, Danielle begins and the, and the lawyer ends and vice versa. And I think, you know, that I see that as maybe the challenge for the next 20 years is figuring out that piece. Yeah. Um, you know, the first 15 were figuring out how to do the job and now it's figuring out how to separate yourself from the job. Um, but it's a challenge I'm happy to take on. And I, I think um you know, Maya, we're, we're so happy and proud to have you in the bar. And, um, and I, and I don't know if it's been a totally welcoming place for you. Um, and I wonder if, if you, there are a lot of judges listening. I I wonder if you think there are any things, you know, you've got this opportunity, a whole bunch of anonymous judges listening, um, senior advocates listening. What, what do you think, um, in 2021, the, the profession needs to hear? That's a, that's a really tough question. And I'll, I'll start by answering by saying, I, so I'm less than three years at the bar. And so far, like most of my interactions with senior counsel, most of my interactions with chair members, with lawyers have been really positive ones, yeah. especially when I was more junior, I really, did feel that I was given a lot of latitude because I was junior mm. and, you know, I was giving, given a lot of help even by opposing counsel, uh, you know, recognizing that I'm junior. So I, I want to start out by that because my experience has really been um, really positive, uh, generally speaking. I, I think um, the one thing that, you know, if I, uh, the one thing I would say to judges or, um, you know, panel members that are presiding over hearings is that um, I think sometimes they don't separate the client from the lawyer Mm. and it it can put the lawyer in a very difficult position. So sometimes the lawyer themselves are getting conflicting instructions and it's not because the client's necessarily being difficult, but because the client is in a difficult situation mm-hmm. and there's a lot of issues to navigate. And sometimes it's hard to be, you know, very brief and succinct within, you know, a very limited period of time when you have a lot of difficult issues that you're trying to communicate to your client, that you're trying to get clear instructions and, and that you're trying to raise in the matter of a hearing or an appeal. So, and, uh, I think because of sy- 
because of the structure of the hearings or the structure of how things are scheduled, where everything is in a time crunch, you're, you're sometimes, I sometimes find myself, you know, being put under extreme time pressures mm. and being put under pressures that are really unrealistic for issues that are really more complex than they, uh, than they may seem. So, and, and often it's put on the lawyer, uh, you know, forgetting that this lawyer is getting instructions from a client and this lawyer can't proceed without those clear instructions. So if things need to take more time, then they might just need to take more time. But I so often find myself essentially, you know, asking for more time and, you know, getting a bad reaction or, you know, asking for a hearing to be scheduled, you know, for a much longer period of time than it would be. And again, getting a bad reaction. Mm-hmm. I don't think that ends up being very fair to the lawyer or to the client. And the, these hearings are really important to the clients, obviously. And they are often the difference between, you know, liberty or detention for that client. And when it ends up being everything on a time pressure saying, okay, I only have five minutes. Let me just like get your instructions in these five minutes. It, it's not very fair really. And it, it ends up being a, a, a difficult situation to navigate. So I think that is something that I would like to highlight essentially, and just maybe remind, uh, you know, lawyers and presiding members that may forget <laughs> reasonably so how it might be like when you're on the ground and when you're trying to navigate these issues that are in front of you. Oh God, that's just dead on. I mean, I, I think for my practice where I really feel that is, um, you know, in sometimes in the course of discussions with crown attorneys, um, and I would say it's infrequent, but sometimes I, I feel like I'm dealt with, with so much skepticism as though, you know, I'm not one of them, you know, we're all doing the same, we're all working um, uh, in the same trench. And, uh, and sometimes I feel like they're dealing with me as though I'm trying to pull a fast one or, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, I, that I'm trying to work some sort of tactical maneuver when I'm really, I'm just trying to uh, meet out my instructions. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I think that um, if there could be a little bit of uh, perspective uh, or a, look, a little bit of seeing matters from our perspective, or at least trying to, um, that would be tremendously helpful. Erin. <laughs> I don't know if you agree. Absolutely. I, I sometimes want to tell crowns or judges look i'm just doing my job like this is this is what i am supposed to be doing yeah and when you are yelling at me or i'm faced with such skepticism or you know we start like every crown pretrial has to start with this kind of angry or accusatory tone i'm like this is this is my job yeah it's constitutionally mandated by the way so like I've kind of got to do it um (laughs) I didn't stab the guy that's often how I want to like start (laughs) I personally didn't do this I'm not suggesting it was a good thing to do but I've got to make this pitch that I've got to make and um I think a little bit of, of room to do that. Uh, and, and I accept, you know, what judges and crowns and other members they're faced with, you know, 
defense counsel have that their bad days too. And sometimes, yeah. you know, the other players in the system have their backs against the wall because they've been in, they've not been treated well, or, or, you know, we haven't brought the right approach. So I, I don't put, you know, blame on any one particular party, but a little bit of recognition that, gosh, it's a tough job they've got to do and they're doing the tough job. And when we're in the midst of doing that really, really hard job, um, <laughs> it would be nice if there was a little, a, a bit more recognition of that at, at time to time. Amen. Yeah. Danielle, can I give my one if for judges listening? Yes. This is like my, this is my constant pitch. I'm talking myself out of a job here, given that a large part of my practice is, is appealing NCR verdicts. But my one, like my one pitch always to judges that are listening is, is to consider often the appeals that I do from NCR verdicts are from proceedings that uh, went by consent. So everybody said at the time, yep, NCR, let's do it. Yeah. Um, and there's often no evidence called. The doctor doesn't show up. There's just a report filed. Um, there is no plea inquiry and everybody disagrees. This hold up, hold up, Erin. There's no plea inquiry. Often there's not. I find wow. that often it's and, and this uh, court of our court of appeal said that there is no constitutional requirement to do a inquiry into the validity of a consent NCR. Right. Um, defense in the same way that you have to, the judge has to be satisfied that a plea is voluntary. They don't have to be satisfied from a constitutional standpoint Mm -hmm. that someone is validly consenting to an NCR verdict. That's it. That was a case called Kenville from the court of appeal. Since then, the court of appeal has said, well, look, maybe it's not a constitutional requirement, but it's a, generally speaking, it's often a good idea to make sure Um, that someone understands the consequences and in particular, the fact that you can be indefinitely detained um, as a result of an NCR verdict before you, uh, before you sort of proceed on consent. So the law is developing in that area, um, but it's still a work in progress. And, and I think just as a matter of practice, you know, we would never, you would never have a dangerous offender proceeding where everyone just walked in and said, oh yeah, it's on consent. We don't need the doc. Um, he's dangerous. Let's wrap this up in less than 20 minutes. Yep. And so I think we need to approach defense counsel, crowns, judges. We all need to approach these proceedings um, with a real awareness of the profound consequences of that verdict. And in particular, that that these folks can be detained for the rest of their lives. And in some cases, it is 100% the appropriate verdict and the evidence is there and it's the right thing to do and it prevents miscarriages of justice. And, and by all means, that's that's what we have to do. But um, in, in other cases, it's not. And we should take, you know, take a breath take a moment. Let's ensure people know what they're consenting to. Let's make sure the evidence is there to back it up. And let's not treat, let's, let's, you know, I think there's a real sliding scale sometimes on the mental health issues where we're really skeptical of people's claims about mental health issues when they're charged with murder. Yep. But we're really okay with them being found in CR if they're charged with mischief. Yep. And, and we need to, to just slow down. I think, um, take a moment to really consider what those consequences are for, for everyone um, and what like what the defense is supposed to be about 
and uh, what the best steps are um, and the sort of legally mandated steps for for every proceeding. So that's really boring and law geeky, it's but I thought uh, <laughs> I know Maya represents lots of clients who have been in the review board system for years and years and years, and they'll they'll come and say like, how do I get out of here? And and sometimes we're going back, you know, 15 years to look at a court proceeding that, you know, never it they never should have gotten there in the first place. I, I was just thinking that I, I I can't tell you how many times we've had a conversation with a client that said, like, I've only like the, the charge was only like a simple assault. I've been in the system for 10 years. When am I getting out? And sometimes they're still detained. Uh, you know, sometimes they're detained without any privileges to go out of the hospital. And, you know, I really echo everything that Aaron said that, you know, going NCR and, you know, going under the ORB jurisdiction can be such a good thing for some people, but it also can mean indefinite detention for some people. And if it's on a very simple, you know, initial charge, the, the client should really, really, really be aware of what is happening and what they're getting themselves into. And if, if they agree, then great, but it's not a simple solution at all. And it, 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 it can really mean indefinite detention potentially the story we tell the sort of popular story of ncr i think in the media is you're getting away with something yeah and, um and i think that has unfortunately uh that popular story about what it means has sometimes invaded the thinking of defense lawyers and crowns and judges and yeah. so i think we have to tell a new story about that that um or it's important to tell like a, a truthful story about uh, a the, the full the full story but what it means to be found in CR what um, programs are available who fit, who does well in the review board system and who doesn't yeah. the types of disorders that are treatable the types that are treatment resistant folks who have addiction issues you know are they well suited for a review board and, and I think a, a bigger conversation would be it would be wonderful if we could have sort of a bigger conversation about, about that. Um, we use the criminal justice system, I think, as a sort of a net that that catches a lot of non-criminal law problems. Um, and it's unfortunate that that that, you know, so we have this blunt sort of NCR tool. Uh, and that's really one of the few uh few tools in the the toolbox in the criminal justice system. And often these are folks that don't really have a criminal law problem. That's what I want to say. I'm like, how do we get this? How do we yeah. prevent this from getting into the criminal justice system in the first place? Because the solutions for mental health issues aren't in the criminal justice system. They're, they're, they're elsewhere. And there are so, so few off ramps, you know, yeah. or the off ramps really depend on, you know, random assignments of a particular crown or a particular judge who's well-educated in the, these matters um, doing the pretrial. And it really shouldn't, depend on those sorts of random assignments. Um, I think it, what I reflect on is, I think it comes 360 um, to what you said initially, Maya, you know, that you don't know what you don't know. And I would, I would say that counsel who are, who like me um, will do uh, an NCR case from time to time, or will have a client presenting with significant mental health problems should never hesitate to reach out to counsel who are very experienced in the, in the area, e either to pass the case along or, 
you know, to, to get advice and guidance and, and to read um, everything that you can get your hands on before you jump in. And these are really significant decisions and, and they can't uh, be undertaken lightly. And, and, you know, poor Aaron has had to suffer through a number of meetings with me <laughs> where I've, I've said like, okay, am I doing this right? Is this the, you know, is this the right move in the circumstances? And, and, you know, the advice that Maya gave at the outset applies to senior counsel as well. And I, I just don't think you're, you're ever, um, t- you know, too senior to reach out for advice and guidance in a practice area that you're not doing um, day to day. So, uh, but I, 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 this week I've reached out to, to, you know, senior colleagues, I think, you know, 15, whether you're at five years, 10 years, 15 years, it's, I would just echo it's, it's so important. And I, I do all the time reaching out to senior people to, to get the perspective. And I'll say on behalf of my, she's probably too junior and shy to say so, but you should, you should definitely, you should, Maya is an expert and she's a wonderful person and a wonderful resource. Um, and you should refer work to her. Um, and also you should refer work to people like Maya and, and myself that doesn't relate to mental health law necessarily. We yep. take, we, we do take referrals for paid clients as well. Uh, paid <laughs> clients as well. <laughs> you will get paid. <laughs> you will get paid. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, I'm, I, we're in the virtual context, but I just keep thinking the thought that keeps cycling through my head as I've, I've kept you way longer than um, your calendar invite suggests <laughs> is how lucky I would be if I, to walk into a lounge with the two of you there, you know, what a special day it would be to, to walk into a lounge with, with Maya and Aaron. And I really miss those days, you know, I really miss that sort of happenstance meeting in in a court and we get to hang out and eat a terrible croissant and um, drink shitty coffee together. And, and I can't wait to get back there and, and, you know, fuck this pandemic. It's enough already. Um, But I think we just have to subsist with this, this little virtual lounge. And I'm really grateful to, to both of you for spending time with, with me in the lounge. And, and I know that my listeners are really going to appreciate your perspective and hearing more about um, your fascinating practice area. And, um, you know, I can't wait to see you guys around. It has been decades since a fresh perspective has been published on the law of criminal evidence. Iman Publishing is proud to soon be releasing its first treaties, Modern Criminal Evidence, authored by Matthew Gourlay, Brock Jones, Jill D. Makepeace, Glenn Crisp, and Justice Renee Pomerantz, with a foreword by Justice David Doherty. This comprehensive 800-page treatise analyzes evidentiary issues from Crown, defense, and judicial perspectives, featuring up-to-date content and real-world examples on a diverse range of topics, including judicial fact-finding, digital evidence, opinion, circumstantial and character evidence, hearsay, judicial notice, the intersection of proceedings, confessions, and privilege, in addition to practice tips that provide readers with years' worth of trial experience anticipate evidentiary issues, develop practical solutions, and employ compelling advocacy strategies. 
And I can tell you that I've begged Matt for advanced chapters of this book. They are excellent. I've reviewed them and put them into practice in the trial context already. Pre-order your copy today. Visit iman.ca slash LLP dash MCE and enter promo code Lawyers Lounge MCE at checkout for 10% off your copy of Modern Criminal Evidence. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much to Maya and Aaron for coming to the lounge today for your wisdom and your candor. It was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yes, send them work. They're very deserving. Send them all sorts of work uh, and they'll do an excellent job. Um, they're wonderful advocates. This was a wonderful discussion and I, I can't wait to see you next time in the lounge. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Danan Hawes. And marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like the Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Iman exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. 